You're listening to the Friday Morning Podcast with hosts Bill Ballinger and Dennis Denno discussing Michigan politics and political history. The Friday Morning Podcast has you covered. Hey, Bill, before we go to our guest, let's talk a little bit about our partner, DeadlineDetroit.com. Well, Deadline Detroit is a one-stop online news site that aggregates the best stories from local, national, and international media about Metro Detroit. It also produces original reporting and provides commentary from top-rate local journalists. Great. Now let's go to our guest. And with me now is Democratic State Representative Tyrone Carter. He is a state representative representing the 6th House District, which covers a portion of the city of Detroit and the cities of Ecorse and River Rouge. Welcome back to the Friday Morning Podcast, State Representative Tyrone Carter. Well, thank you so much for having me again, and it's a pleasure pleasure to be here and, and talk to you anytime. So let's talk a little bit about the 6th House District. I think the 6th House District is pretty unique, faces some pretty unique challenges. When we talk about it being a portion of Detroit, we're basically talking about southwest Detroit. Is that correct? Well, no. We're, we're talking about if you take Jefferson from, well, it covers Ecorse and River Rouge, which right. Jefferson goes from uh, Wyandotte. It stops at Wyandotte and becomes, uh, I want to say, Nah, it doesn't become Biddle, it becomes something else. But anyway, you take Jefferson all the way down through southwest Detroit where um, Fort Wayne is and where the old Babalo Dock used to be, and then it, it goes up to Fort Street, and you go down a little ways, and then you go behind the post office onto Jefferson again, and you take it all the way over to Indian Village in Belle Isle, and, and that is the district, if you follow Jefferson, and it moves up from there. So I want to say everything off the river, and... Almost everything downtown. Wow. So let's talk about your district. What are some of the unique challenges about your district, and what are some of the secret gems of your district? Well, the the unique challenge, well, it's not really a challenge, but the diversity of the district. When we talk about um, diversity, we, we can talk about the ethnicity. We can talk about the educational level. We can even talk about the income uh, disparities in it, because I have Indian Village, which has the rich old stately homes. I have the riverfront, which has the, the really nice apartments. And I have Delray and some other parts of, of Southwest Detroit and parts of the east side that really aren't doing well. So there's different challenges that, that come with this. And then you add uh, Ecorse and River Rouge, which, you know, the steel company uh, was, was the main staple there, which just laid off 1,500 workers, you know, right before COVID. There's a lot of challenges, but there's a lot of opportunities as well. You know, when we look at uh, District 6, um, it, it's really a study of resilience. Some of the neighborhoods are, are really coming back. They're doing well. A lot of industrial uh, frontage, you know, off of the river. So there's opportunities for, you know, businesses to move in and the infrastructure's there. So that's the one thing. The other thing we have is, is the uh, hospitality industry. Have every casino, have every stadium, and... Hard Plaza. So just a lot of gems, a lot of, uh, um, you know, restaurants. So we're, we're really the hub of southeastern Michigan and uh, the, the city of Detroit as well. So District 6 is where most things happen. So you mentioned famous Indian Village in the city of Detroit, and there's talk of Indian Village changing the name of their neighborhood. Are you supportive of that? You know what? I... It, we're, we're in a, 
we're we're in a space and time where you know almost everything is on the table, off the table. We've known Indian Village as Indian Village because of the names of the streets: Seminole, Iroquois, um, Burns. So that has been a mainstay, and I don't think it's it's a negative attachment to to Indian Village. You know, like the Washington Redskins. So no, I'm not supportive of that. I'm not. You know, it's it's one of those things. But I'll let the residents who reside there decide. But that's one of the. I don't see people renaming Sherwood Force. I don't see them renaming Rosedale Park. I don't see them renaming, you know, the university district. So it has a uniqueness and and an identity attached to it. So I think, um, you know, it's up for discussion, but uh, hopefully it will remain Indian Village. Cool. So you had mentioned COVID. Now, you are one of the state representatives who contracted COVID. Fortunately, you survived it. But what was that experience like? Yeah, you know, I, I have the uh, the distinction of being probably well. I was the first state representative um, to, to contract it. It um, it was really an eye opener for me and and quite a few other people around me because at the time it was so new. And one of my good friends, we, we were all at an event, and I think that's you know, if we were to guess and say that's where we we were all exposed. He ended up passing away. He was a commander with the sheriff's department, Donna Faye Collins, also a radio DJ. He passed away. Uh, another coworker, Linda Jones, um, ended up on a respirator in the hospital. Four or five of us got really sick. And the, the thing for me was, at the time, we didn't know all the symptoms. Like, you, you think you have a flu, you think you have a cold, you don't know what you have, but I ended up having a fever of like 102 I had chills that were so bad that my, my teeth were rattling like, uh, you know, dice at a, uh, a crap table. Blah, 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 blah. Wow. And loss of taste, loss of taste and smell, muscle aches. Every muscle in my body, uh, you know, was just hurting. I'm trying to think about the cough. So had all of those, um, isolated myself at, at one point from uh, my wife and son. And, and so, you know, just, Thank God I didn't have any respiratory issues because I think those were the ones that, that would get you in the hospital and, and, you know, get you on the ventilator. And at that time, there was a only a 20% success rate if you, you got on a ventilator. So, you know, it was a scary time. And, and it was right around the time I think I found out that Thursday that I was positive. And that Sunday, Isaac Robinson passed away. So, I mean, you, you, you think about your, your mental state of, of mind, you know, with this too, because now we're looking at, we don't know what the after uh, effects are for COVID. Like, I know that I'm not as strong as I used to be. And that came from, you know, moving stuff around the house. And like, wait a minute, this is, you know, I used to be able to toss these things. So as, as we, we, you know, and I've gone to the doctor and, and we've talked about, you know, the after, uh, after effects. And, you know, if you watch Cuomo at night, he's had it and he's talking about his temper. He's talking about other people having brain loss, hair loss. So, you know, I had those and, and I really thank God that, um, you know, I, I, you know, came out the way I did and, and if, you know, lost some weight, but I got that back. So hopefully I can get my strength back as well. Well, I'm really glad you're able to make it, and it sounds like a pretty horrific experience. It, no, it, it really is, because we still don't know what we don't know about it. 
And, and that's the scary thing, and, and this cavalier attitude. And I'm, I hate to put the president on the spot with, with his attitude, but we don't have a helicopter waiting at our beck and call. We don't have <laughs> doctors inside our homes. We, we don't have access to all of the things that, that he's, you know, beating his chest about. We had people that were being turned away from the hospital that died at home. So for him to get out here is really disrespectful and insulting to the families and the people that have suffered through this. So I just had to get that off my chest. Sorry. No, it's all right. Let's talk a little bit about that. So you had Vice President Joe Biden visit you at your house. How did that happen? Uh, and what was that experience like? Um, now, I've, I've, uh, I've met the uh, vice president a few times when he was the vice president and since he was running. And, and I, I've endorsed him early on. You know, I figured he had the temperament, the, the attitude, and the ability to lead. So what happened, as I spoke before, the steel, steel mill, U.S. Steel is in the district, E. Corson Rouge. And four years ago, I think they supported uh, then-candidate Trump and, and the coal miners, you know, with all these promises of, you know, hey, you know, what you got to lose, I'm going to bring, you know, make America, you know, whatever again. And so, you know, they bought it. So the steel workers were one of the groups that supported uh, then candidate Trump. Well, fast forward, January, before COVID hit, they laid off 1,500 workers uh, that, that they're probably going to be laid off permanently. So this has rocked the entire, uh, you know, U.S. Steel uh, Corporation. So what they wanted was a, a backyard space to have a conversation with the steel workers, with the unions, and to, to find out, you know, how can we, we, you know, make something better. So we were looking at a few places in E-Course, which is where uh, U.S. Steel is. So they said, well, we, we want to do it at a park and we want to do it at a yard. So finally they said, we want to do it at a yard. So I said, well, hey, uh, I've got a pretty decent-sized yard, um, you know, pretty, you know, I've got fences, whatever, whatever you need. So they came by a couple times, uh, his advance team. And then Secret Service came by and walked around and looked, at, and they gave me the thumbs up. They were like, yeah, this is uh, you know, pretty secure. We, we can control this. So um, he came and uh, met my family, and, and I've met him before, and, and he's always just a, a gracious, genuine person. You know, he talked about, um, told me, yeah, you still look like you could play sports, and I said, nah, those days are over. Huh. After a couple ruptured Achilles, and then he told me his granddaughter had ruptured her Achilles. So this, this misconception that, you know, he's not all there is actually pretty funny to me. So he's really an engaging guy. That's, a, that's an awesome story. So let's talk a little bit about the legislature and you are on the education committee. How do you like being on that committee and what are some of the issues uh, that you're facing with about two months to go? Well, the issue is is that we've not the only democratic bill that we've been able to get through was Brenda Carter's about cursive handwriting, <laughs> and uh, it's just uh, my, my colleagues, my Republican colleagues, don't get it. Okay, um, you know, and and I I'm pretty sure um, they they probably are in line and in step with uh, what we're doing nationally or federally from the uh, Department of Education head. Uh, who's from Michigan, and, um, you know, I, I represent all students. I, I think I have 13 charter schools in my district, and, and I, I say this. Kids don't determine what schools they go to. Their parents are trying to give them the best opportunities for success, so their parents pick the school. 
So I don't play picking and choosing with schools. But what we want is equality. If, if a public school has to meet this standard and this criteria, then I think that some of the charter schools do. There are some great ones, and there are some really horrible ones that are being predators in communities. They come in with the new buildings. So when, when, we, when I sit on education and I talk about the issues that impact my district and urban areas, it's almost like it falls on deaf ears. So hopefully, crossing my fingers, working hard, that we can flip the house and have a legitimate conversation about um, education um, and equity and equality in areas that, that don't get it. So when you talk about issues that are facing urban schools and uh, kids in urban communities, what are those issues? And well, you- the biggest one right now with, with COVID, first of all, the, the, the lack of funding or, or the inequity that the schools are funded. I've got uh, eCourse, River Rouge, but I've also got three of the largest uh, high schools in the city of Detroit, Cass, King, and Western High School. And so when we talk about resources, we're talking about the, the money to have teachers, the money to have supplies. And now there was a mad scramble to find out, you know, who had access to internet, who had the ability to have internet, because now we're doing distance learning. So just an overall view of how do we make this better and prepare these kids that, that are always, it appears they're always sometimes behind other districts or, or other students in the state. You know, you mentioned the Secretary of Education in Washington, D.C., you're obviously referring to Betsy DeVos, who was from Michigan. I mean, what is your frustration with her policies? Well, the frustration is they're not realistic in, in areas. And it, it comes down to, to me, the, the reality is, what do you know about public education, really? Because that's the majority of, of the way kids are educated, not just in the state of Michigan, but across the country. So for a person to, to come in and say, well, people need to have choice. Well, people have always had choices, but not with public money. If you're going to have a choice, then there needs to be requirements. There needs to be um, stipulations that go along with this. I, I, you know, I had a choice. I was able to send my kids to, to a private school, but my parents didn't have that choice. It was seven of us. We all had to go to public school. And I thank God back then that we had the teachers in the community that we had. But it, it's funny when I have this conversation, I know that is not my strong suit. I, I, I lean on others. So I have a relationship with both superintendents from eCourse and, and River Rouge. But my third grade teacher, who's 90 years old, lives down the street from me. God bless her. She's still alive. And we have those conversations. If there's something that I don't know, I'm smart enough to know what I don't know, then I'll lean on somebody who, who's, who knows it. And she is just frustrated with the way schools are treated under this current administration. So not a fan, not a fan. Something I'm really interested in, and that's been a huge topic, obviously, in this country, is policing. And you were with the Wayne County Sheriff's Office for 25 years. You served in law enforcement for 25 years. And you obviously see the defund the police movement. You see the Black Lives Matters movement. And you have an insight into policing in this country. And what are your thoughts when it comes to issues of defunding the police and issues of, of, of how policing works, in, you know, especially in urban communities? 
Well, the, the first thing, that is the worst slogan I've ever heard, defund the police. Okay, defund means to take away at a time when we need more. Now, we can reimagine the police, but when I hired into the Sheriff's Department in 1984, I watched what happened when we defunded mental health. And we ended up criminalizing mental health and sending people with mental health issues into jails and prisons that were not adequately staffed or, or educated on how to deal with that. So I've watched what defunding certain entities has, has taken place. We, we talked about defunding schools. When, when they took money away from the schools, then all of a sudden we heard about this pipeline to prison. So we need to be very careful when we talk about defunding an entity. That, that's there. And we only talk about defunding in urban areas. We're not talking about defunding in suburban areas where, where they, they consider them safe and they're not having these incidents. So we need to reimagine how we're going to police. And the first thing we need to look at is how do we protect good officers from bad officers? So I'm not here to defund the police. I'm here to defend the police. I'm here to defend good police from bad police. I'm here to defend the public from bad police. And how we do that is we have to have some accountability. Right now, there is no accountability. There's this blanket immunity. There's no way to chart or track an officer's behavior of any consequence. And you can jump from department to department. Uh, and the Inkster incident is, is such a, uh, a great example of how the, uh, they used to call him RoboCop. I can't think of his name now. He worked in Detroit, and he was on his way to a hearing, and he, <laughs> the word I get is that he was told he was going to be terminated. So he, he resigned. And then he ends up going to Inkster. Then he ends up beating up a motorist, costing that city $3 million that they had to get a special bond to pay for his wrongdoing. When if we were able, if they were able to say, well, wait a minute, these were his issues in the city that he, he formerly worked in, I don't think that the city of Inkster would have hired him had they known or had there been full disclosure of this activity. So we, we've got to work on that. And what I really need is for good police to really step up and, and be honest about um, the impact of, of, you know, what, what negative policing has done. And we look at George Floyd and think about this for a moment, Dennis. During COVID, first responders, we were treated like royalty. I mean, kings, I mean, uh, hospital staff, um, fire, police, EMS, they were treated well. After the, you know, dinners, meals, coffee, whatever it was, after this took place, I had some of my uh, former colleagues, you know, um, tell me that, you know, you would hear stories about them getting coffee and, and people doing things to their coffee just because they were in uniform. So we, we've got to change that. Um, we, we've got to go back where there's this respect, there's this understanding, um, and there's this expectation of protection and serving in, in communities uh, that have been marginalized. Let me just be honest. They're not protesting in Rochester Hills. They're not protesting in Burma. They're protesting in Detroit, and we haven't had those issues, and I'm trying to figure out why. You know, there's no perfect policing, but we got to figure out how to get the community more involved and educated on what the expectations are, as well as we need to have good officers that are going to use good judgment. And when they don't, there has to be consequences. So good officers using good judgment is, is the solution, as some have said, is the solution just more training? You know what? 
training is always that easy way out. And if we're going to have an honest conversation, if, if people are being choked or, or, or shot in the back in other communities, then it's a training issue. I've been to a police academy. I've taught a police academy. I've been to the FBI academy. And nowhere have I seen these instances in other communities that they are in in urban communities. Um, the fleeing felon. We're taught that if a person is fleeing, he's no longer a threat. Let him go. Why would you shoot somebody in the back? When you look at the George Floyd incident, there's four officers. He's handcuffed. He's on the ground. What more can you do to him? And, and you know, the old stop struggling. Stop. We need to get away from that. We have the, the policing has evolved. It used to be the only thing you had at your disposal were your hands and, and, and your weapon, your, your, your firearm. Now we have tasers. Now we have pepper spray. Now there's video cameras. So there's levels of escalation and de-escalation to a situation. But quite often, in certain communities, they go straight from talking to pulling a weapon. So that, that has to change. So, so let me ask maybe a tough question here. How, how much of that is the fault of police unions? Some have, some have blamed police unions and said their, their job is to cover up bad police officers and bad actions. And others have said that police unions are there to stick up for good cops too. So what, what, what do you think about that? You know, to, to charge a police union is, is an easy way out. The police unions represent the officers. It's the policies and the culture of the department that, that has to be changed. Because they're doing their job. They, they can represent. The, the thing about a union person is they're like an emergency room doctor. They don't get to pick and choose who they're going to represent. They represent horrible officers who, who have done bad things. And they represent good officers who management has said has done something and then they're entitled to their due process. But it, they, they, do, they don't do themselves any justice, uh, police unions, when they get on TV and make statements where they vilify victims or the person that has been harmed. Sometimes they're better off just shutting up. Just, just be quiet. Uh, having no comment would probably serve them better than some of the things that I've seen lately uh, coming out of police unions' mouths. So we have to get away, the, the unions have to understand that the officers work for a department. And the officers and the department have to understand that taxpayers are paying your salaries. So we, we have a relationship here and an expectation. You have an expectation to do a job according to the rules and regulations. And the, the citizens have an expectation that you're going to respond in kind. That in, in certain communities, in black communities, just be honest. If you call the police, you start asking, you know, say, hey, there's an incident. Sometimes we've been told that the police show up and ask the person who called more questions than they would than, than saying, okay, let me go look for what happened. So we've got to change the dynamics, and it starts with the culture of some of these police organizations. And it, it, it can't be more obvious than when you had that sheriff on TV um, after the rally. <laughs> I've got no words for him. So, so anyway, um, you know, af after the incident with the governor, he's on television telling well, all they were going to do was going to arrest her or they were just, he's the leader of an organization. Can you imagine somebody riding through that community that doesn't look like him? Yeah. We have to change the culture. Yeah. 
Hey, last question for me. In 2017, you ran for Detroit City Council and you almost won. You almost beat an incumbent uh, Detroit City Councilwoman. Are you looking to run again for City Council next year? You know what? That, uh, let me just say, nothing's off the table. <laughs> Nothing is off the table. Um, you know, uh, only thing, what did it say? I came close. That only counts in uh, horseshoes <laughs> and hand grenades. But, but I think there's a... Uh, there's some different dynamics to that now. So, um, you know, we're going to take a, a look at it. And, and it comes down to where am I going to be more effective for the people I represent? Will it be at the state level where I'm one of 110? Or will it be at the city level where I'm one of nine? So we will have to take a, a hard look at that. You know, I'm curious not to put you on the spot, but do you know how much overlap there is between the Detroit part of your house district and that city council seat? Um, yes. It stops uh, all of southwest Detroit up to, well, the Chatsey area. And pretty much, it, it's, it's almost a similar footprint if you eliminate e and, and River Rouge. The footprint is pretty much the same uh, territorial-wise, but it stops, uh, it encumbers Corktown, but the city council district covers Midtown. And it goes a little further up Grand River. So, and, and over to, uh, I want to say what Chansey Condon area is as well. So. All right. State Representative Tyrone Carter, thank you for being on the Friday Morning Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Dennis. And uh, look forward to us uh, talking. I expect an interesting uh, year next year. So, uh, looking forward to flipping the house and moving forward. <laughs> Great. Thanks. And that's it for another edition of the Friday Morning Podcast located at theballingerreport.com and at dentalresearch.com. And we'd like to give a special Friday Morning Podcast thanks to the band Little American Champ <laughs> for the music of this podcast. Podcast.